Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 175. Today is the beginning of our coverage of Dean Andrews, the colorful, jive-talking New Orleans attorney that is played by John Candy in the movie JFK. If there ever was a movie character that looked almost identical in the movie to the person they were playing in real life, it would have to be John Candy playing Dean Andrews. Go out to the web and see pictures side-by-side of the two of them, and it's absolutely amazing how well Candy portrays Andrews in the movie. A heavy set kind of jolly guy, Andrews talks in rhythmic and classic Cajun style, with his eyes hiding mysteriously behind a set of dark sunglasses, even when he's inside and covered in shade, and always keeping the audience in a constant state of linguistic analysis that has everyone wondering what was just said, and more importantly, wondering what he meant by what he just said. Oh yeah, I love the onion. Listening to Andrews is entertaining as all get out, and it makes the interpretation of cryptic speech an absolute requirement when listening to Dean Andrews. Dean Andrews is an important part of what I have referred to in past episodes in the Garrison Investigation series as the slog. If you're a pro-Garrison writer, then Dean Andrews was someone who received a telephone call on the day after the assassination by a man he clearly knew and could identify, a man that went by the alias name of Clay Bertrand. And Andrews was asked by this Clay Bertrand to represent Lee Harvey Oswald in the case against him for murdering President Kennedy. And in this version of the narrative, Andrews clearly knows that this Clay Bertrand is really Clay Shaw. And as a good citizen, Andrews moved quickly to alert the authorities about this serendipitous and bizarre phone call that set off a chain reaction of events amidst the post-assassination chaos of that weekend. So he makes a call to the FBI on the Monday after the assassination. But in this pro-Garrison version of the story, Andrews got the heebie-jeebies, either shortly before or shortly after calling the FBI. And that causes him to stick with the alias-only disclosure of who called him, perhaps initially to maintain discretion of the party that made the request. And, after all, it was the truth. The man who called, called himself Bertrand. But perhaps this discretion quickly evolved into an act of self-preservation as a result of some sort of significant threat to his well-being, which, by the way, he openly expressed. Was it the FBI themselves that put the fear of God in him and persuaded him to bend the story away from the original and stop short of identifying Clay Shaw as Clay Bertrand? Maybe so, as he would complain how bad the FBI pressed on him to make the whole messy thing go away as a figment of his imagination or otherwise. So maybe they did just do that. Or was it someone else applying the pressure? Other men in black, perhaps. 
or even his thread of connection back to G. Ray Gill and the Carlos Marcello connection. Or maybe it was just Dean Andrews engaging in a big fib. In this version of the narrative, the fear of God that got into Andrews, however it got there, caused him to clam up and lie about things once the garrison investigation heated up. And, of course, all the lying finally got him into trouble with Garrison. It was that, along with the fact that he simply refused to identify Clay Bertrand as really being Clay Shaw, in Garrison's eyes, he considered that refusal to be a lie. As Garrison was sure that Andrews knew the truth. And for Garrison, the truth was that Clay Bertrand was Clay Shaw. Andrews was deeply connected to the homosexual community in the French Quarter, and it was as a result of representing many of them legally, and many of those referrals came from this man, Bertrand, himself. Andrews knew too much about the French Quarter's underbelly, Garrison thought, and he just had to know the truth, given the whole story of how he knew Oswald, and that was Garrison's story, and he was sticking to it. And I think you will hear why Garrison felt that way once you hear all of Dean Andrews' testimony. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. And so Andrews' reticence, or resistance, whatever you want to call it, resulted in his indictment for perjury charges. Charges that he was convicted of, three counts worth of perjury, in August 1967. Convictions that carried, uh, at least for two of them, two concurrently running 18-month sentences, but which later would be overturned upon appeal. Over the course of the drama, Andrews would accumulate 11 total counts of perjury. Andrews never served time related to any of these convictions, but there is no doubt the convictions were personally damaging. He was forced to quit his role as assistant DA in the Jefferson Parish DA's office. And Garrison, because he felt that Andrews refused to tell the truth and cooperate, loses the use of a key witness for the trial against Clay Shaw. A key witness that could have strongly linked Oswald and Shaw together in a very damning circumstance, and through Andrews. Perhaps the cherry on the cake is an exchange between Andrews and Garrison, contained in Garrison's own book. It's a scene over lunch where Andrews, when pressed by Garrison to admit that Clay Shaw was really Clay Bertrand, or really Clay Bertrand was really Clay Shaw, well, he wasn't bending. Garrison would look Andrews in the eye and say, if you lie to the grand jury, as you have been lying to me, I'm going to charge you with perjury. And Andrews allegedly said back, and I quote, if I answer that question, if I give you that name you keep trying to get, then it's goodbye, Dean Andrews. It's bon voyage, Dino. According to Vincent Pugliosi, and as you know, he is one of the most celebrated JFK researchers and an ardent lone gunman theory supporter, according to Pugliosi, the only place you'll find that documented is in Garrison's book. It didn't show up in any official memo prepared by Garrison after he had the lunch. But then again, that was not Garrison's style to run back to the office and write a memo to the file, and we all know that. So, Bugliosi's attempt here, well, it's a little incredulous that Vincent Bugliosi would try to prove the falsity of that statement by attempting to prove the absence of an official document to back it up. 
but regardless, that's narrative option number one, the pro-garrison narrative. If you're not a garrison supporter, then Dean Andrews is just a jolly guy, a nice guy, but really a buffoon of sorts who got more than one of his oversized fingers in a ringer. And that translates in the narrative to a Dean Andrews that truly never knew the true identity of the man called Clay Bertrand, who had called him on Saturday, November 23rd, the man that had called him while he was in a hospital bed and that had asked him to go to Dallas to represent Lee Harvey Oswald. This narrative believes that Andrews really never knew who Clay Bertrand was when he gave that name to the FBI on the Monday after the assassination and when he testified to the Warren Commission under oath several months later in July 1964. But then again, both the FBI and the Warren Commission had no real interest in finding out who Bertrand really was. Oh, they had to investigate and, oh, they had to document. But truly, to have a lone gunman theory out there in full bloom, but also have a possible conspiratorial accomplice that might be out there trying to help find counsel, that was a very big loose end that the FBI and other investigating agencies didn't want. And so it was easy for Andrews to use a name that would never be fully scrutinized, beyond being a mystery man that nobody could find. And his motive, well, perhaps fame, the idea of becoming a fairly popular guy beyond the confines of New Orleans, with a story being told like that, notoriety was sure to come. Only the clown, like Andrews, got himself in too deep, too quick, and couldn't get himself out of it. There was no choice then, when the garrison investigation rolled around, but to come clean and to tell the truth and stop this foolishness by garrison of trying to try the mystery man and tie the mystery man, Clay Bertrand, to the real-life figure of Clay Shaw. Andrews, in his own mind, had done enough harm, and he was going to stop the nonsense he had started. Nonsense that started while in his own delirious state in the hospital, when he was apparently pulling names from the air to be used in the FBI discussion. In this version of the narrative, the anti-garrison version, Dean Andrews was such a good guy that he decided to correct the earlier personal wrongdoing of telling a lie to the FBI and to the Warren Commission that this mystery man was Clay Bertrand. In this anti-garrison version of the Dean Andrews story, Andrews takes responsibility for his past misspeaks under oath, that is the naming of Clay Bertrand as the person who called him to represent Oswald, and as a result becomes a sort of an American hero who stood up to garrison and his bullying tactics, and decided to take a perjury charge rather than falsely accuse Clay Shaw as being the same person as Clay Bertrand. Are you beginning to see the slog more clearly? It's almost like an Agatha Christie movie script. Pick out which one of these two narratives or endings suits you after having seen them both on the screen. Perhaps both are fiction, but one is more pleasing to the palate depending upon your appetite. Do I sound a bit sarcastic here? Well, I am, 
because honestly, I am getting tired of the slog. Good authors, some of them right there in the thick of it at the time, each telling the story in such different ways, and each twisting it in one basic direction or the other to suit their purpose. Some portraying Garrison and his gang as heroes fighting the forces of evil, and others portraying Garrison as an unbalanced, unscrupulous egomaniac who was carrying out a major abuse of power and miscarriage of justice. And the truth is that neither of these views is exactly right or wrong. But the truth on this one, to me, seems like it simply is closer to the pro-Garrison narrative number one. That Andrews really did know from the get-go who Clay Bertrand was. That he knew Clay Bertrand was an alias for Clay Shaw, and that he lied about it. Because something very early on generated a real sense of fear and well-being for him. And if Garrison was going to level a perjury charge as a result of all of that, Andrews would take it. Because by this time, it was by far the lesser of two evils. And evils seemed to be lurking all around. It seems to have been embodied in Andrews' classic line, Man, if I tell you who this cat is, I'm a dead man. Once you hear the testimony, you may be compelled to believe that Dean Andrews lied and evaded the truth, and he should have been charged with perjury, because identifying Clay Bertrand as the man who called Andrews to represent Oswald and identifying that same man to be Clay Shaw was an important piece of the puzzle, a big puzzle piece that helped to stitch together the myriad of activities supporting Clay Shaw's involvement in a conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. And whether Dean Andrews actually knew this or not, there is no doubt that Clay Bertrand was Clay Shaw. Clay Shaw himself committed perjury when he took the stand in his own defense and denied that he had used the alias. We know this to be true already because there was plenty of good evidence actually introduced at the trial itself supporting this fact. The mail delivered to Shaw's house and subsequently forwarded while he was out of town with the name Bertrand on it as verified by a postal carrier. The entry in the logbook out at the VIP room at the airport. A logbook entry which was attested to by a very credible lounge employee witness under oath. And the signature itself which was verified by a handwriting expert to be Clay Shaw's penning in his own handwriting, of the alias Clay Bertrand, albeit disputed in the usual way by the defense's opposing handwriting expert. The information that Shaw himself gave the booking officer at the time of his own arrest by Garrison's team, answering that he went by Bertrand when asked about whether he used any aliases. That wasn't actually allowed into the trial, but it was a fact that it occurred. We could go on and on, but those are the most prominent. The cryptic nature of Dean Andrews' jive-talking is confusing. He weaves in and out of the truth so often that it's hard to believe he said anything truthful. The inevitable result, which happens to anyone in life who lies about some things and then tries to tell the truth about others. And therein lies the dilemma, or at least a good part of it, when trying to sort this all out. And please do remember this. 
We have a jury here, and you are on it. So let's see what each of you think once you listen to all of the testimony and make your own informed opinion of what all this means in totality. Andrews was questioned a lot, and he testified a lot, and he talked to the FBI a lot. He would be interviewed a total of five times by the FBI in the 10 days after his initial call to them, and two or three times by the Secret Service. It is unclear whether his dialogue with the FBI or Secret Service came first on that Monday after the assassination, November 25th, but both happened on that day, and what he actually said in those precious first few days right after the assassination was almost assuredly and immediately distorted by what ended up in those FBI reports. It does appear that the bending of the narrative began almost immediately as the FBI had its own mission when it came to this dangling participle of an event which positions Andrews as the conduit for someone who had an interest in defending Oswald. A very inconvenient circumstance that was likely left to Regis Kennedy and others in the New Orleans office of the FBI to tidy up. And I believe that shows very clearly in the FBI reports that were filed in the aftermath. And I'll try to point out all that is evident in those reports that supports this very premise. And believe me, as Harold Weisberg, the famous JFK researcher who found most of it, would state, he would say it's just not that hard to do. And then, wouldn't it be only a tiny leap of faith from there to presume that anyone wanting to get involved in Oswald's defense counsel selection at that moment may very well have been involved in the assassination conspiracy? A person who, by definition, might have had a real interest in which legal counsel was going to represent Oswald. That is why identification of the mystery man Clay Bertrand was so important. If you thought Oswald was going to be assassinated as part of this, part of your contingency was not legal representation. And that very well may have been why Dean Andrews got the nod. Here is the elegance of the cover-up from the government side. The FBI, by that time, on Monday, was charged with tidying up the lone gunman theory and finalizing their reports on the assassination. Dean Andrews and his potential link to someone linked to Oswald was messy by its very nature. And the FBI reports, as we now know, appear to reflect at least some material massaging of the information contained in them. A mangled narrative that began with the first reports filed that Monday after the assassination it was then followed by a series of additional reports that repeated and progressed the deception. Reports that were filed later that same week and then others filed during the first week or so in December and mostly filed by Regis Kennedy, an FBI agent and other agents working with him in the New Orleans office. Eventually, there would be sworn testimony taken from Dean Andrews by Wesley Liebler for the Warren Commission in July 1964, and then later, three years after that, Andrews would appear in front of the Orleans Grand Jury. He would make two related appearances in March 1967, and then in 1969, he would appear at the trial itself. And here's the funny thing. Those original distortions contained in those original FBI reports 
may very well have become the cover necessary for Andrews to retreat from his original story and march right back into the shadows. He could tell Garrison that it was all just a dream that he had had, and it wasn't true. Even the phone call may have been a dream. And that, my friends, was already literally in an FBI report that was prepared right at that moment in 1963. So how would one dispute that? It seemed in one sense like an easy walk back of his story, prepackaged by those clever New Orleans FBI agents. A walk back into oblivion. A walk back in an Alice in Wonderland moment where the mystery man Clay Bertrand just seemed to be in a position to disappear into thin air. And all possible, of course, by the convenient fibs incorporated into those FBI reports, something done by the FBI in order to support the lone gunman theory at the time, but not to try and save Dean Andrews. The world was quiet for a while right after the assassination. 1964 came and Andrews testified in front of the Warren Commission and his testimony and those related FBI reports were then buried with some of them in clear sight in the 26 volumes of the Warren Commission report, and some of them farther underneath the surface in File 75, an especially important file that was unearthed by Harold Weisberg. Yes, that dog was lying quietly on the floor until Garrison got hold of those volumes and saw his old friend Dean Andrews featured within. One little paragraph of the Warren report and He took a particular interest in his old friend. Here was this fantastic story of Dean Andrews having met Oswald in the summer of 1963 related to Oswald's request for legal services and then being called the day after the assassination by someone wanting him to represent Oswald. This had to be a seriously important clue as to who done it. Garrison now had a bone and He wasn't going to let go. (laughs) Poor Dean Andrews. Tag, buddy. You're it. Garrison would call his old friend up beginning in the summer of 1966 and embark on a series of lunches with Andrews, which took place mostly at Broussard's, which is a fine and famous place to eat in New Orleans in the day. The first of those meetings was on October 29, 1966, and the second took place shortly before Christmas. Others would follow shortly after the start of the new year in 1967. Garrison's aim was to get Andrews to tell him who this fellow was, this Clay Bertrand. In Jim Garrison's own book, On the Trail of the Assassins, there is only a mention of one of these lunches, but the general evidence supports that he possibly met with Andrews on all of these occasions in this relaxed environment to discuss the case evidence, including Andrew's own testimony about it. Vincent Bugliosi believes that a statement made by Frank Klein, one of Garrison's most trusted confidants in the office and one of his chief investigators, a character you have heard mentioned before on the podcast, well, in the early and initial stages of the investigation, Klein may have made statements which motivated Garrison to believe that Clay Shaw was the mysterious Clay Bertrand. According to Bugliosi, Klein had remarked that Clay Shaw had the same first name, and 
He was a homosexual who lived in the French Quarter. That apparently was enough at the very beginning to get Garrison focused on the idea that these two people were one and the same. Eventually, Garrison would tire of the cat and mouse answers that Andrews was providing. And he began to invite Andrews to come downtown for what turned out to be a series of interrogation sessions. Eventually, Andrews would participate in a taped interview conducted on March 2nd, 1967, in Garrison's office. And just one day after Clay Shaw was indicted, and one week before Andrews himself would be summoned to appear for the first time in front of the grand jury on March 9th. His basic evasiveness in those grand jury proceedings and his departure from statements he made in Garrison's office just one week prior and on tape were enough to irk Garrison and his assistants. They were at the end of their rope, and Andrews' statements and actions were enough to generate perjury charges against him. And likely, it was deservedly so if you listen to the testimony. Before it was all over, Andrews would accumulate 11 total counts of perjury against him. Andrews' oversized fingers were in a ringer, and there was no Cajun food in sight. What a shame. And you know, as a side note, I would give anything for a good Napoleon sandwich right now, because... I am working hard on this episode, and it's late. And of course, that always happens when I think about New Orleans. <laughs> but as usual, I digress. So here's what we're going to do. In this first episode, we will tell the basic story, the overview of how Andrews got involved and the basic facts. We'll run through the FBI reports, which contain those initial conversations with Dean Andrews and the statements he made starting with that weekend after the assassination. Well, at least as they were portrayed in the FBI reports. And then after this episode is finished, we'll provide, in the form of several bonus episodes, Andrew's Warren Commission testimony first, and then his grand jury testimony, which is long and arduous, but still somewhat important to listen to, at least pieces of, and it's a real wander, and you can decide to listen or not to that bonus episode but I think to get away from the legendary narratives about Andrews, the narratives that I described at the top of the hour here, and still be in a position to make your own conclusions as a juror, listening to the bonus episodes is probably necessary. And then we'll move on to the actual testimony he had at trial. And then the only other true bonus is that you get to hear me play Dean Andrews using one of my worst Cajun accent hack jobs to date. Oh, and as a footnote, by the time the actual Clay Shaw trial occurred in 1969, because Garrison had put Andrews under indictment by then for perjury, there was no using him in the trial itself. The game was over for Andrews as a prosecutorial witness. Garrison had one less critical witness available to him, but the defense now had a friend. A Dean Andrews testified as a witness for the defense at the Clay Shaw trial. I guess you could say, if you are promoting the pro-Garrison narrative, that this was but one more way that the federal government and others helped to tear apart Garrison's case. And if you are anti-Garrison, it was but one more example of where Garrison attempted to force the narrative himself, what the truth was here, and it backfired in his face again. But you are the jury, 
and I'll let you sort all of that out while I eat a sandwich. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 175 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. It was November 20th, the Wednesday just before the president was assassinated. Dean A. Andrews Jr. was admitted to Hotel Dew Hospital in New Orleans. Andrews was overweight, and he was a smoker, and he was suffering from what was essentially a bout of pneumonia. In those days, you stayed in the hospital a lot longer than you do now, and his hospital stay would take nine days. He was discharged on the 29th of November, exactly a week after the president's assassination. Typically, a pneumonia stay in today's hospital environment averages about two or three days, if it's even intense enough to warrant an inpatient admission at a hospital. Not often is that the case, and especially for a man who was 45 years old at the time. Look, he was sick for sure, but not sick enough to be incoherent or out of it, so to speak. And that plays into a few facts that we'll hear about a little later. A way for Andrews and perhaps the FBI to conveniently bend the narrative. Andrews was 58 when he died, some 13 years later. So he wasn't the picture of health under any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) But that's a wander that we'll avoid. With news of the assassination still fresh and raw, the world was ablaze on Saturday the 23rd. But Andrews, as sick as he was was still trying to concentrate on an election that was just weeks away, an election where he, Andrews, was running to be a judge in Jefferson Parish. Andrews was not a lawyer to the stars. He was an everyday sole proprietor, a man with a small office shingle, hung out at 628 Maison Blanche in the Autobahn building. He was a guy who took whatever business came his way. It was a curious group of almost 40 to 50 gay kids that began a steady parade into his office that eventually created a low-paying niche business in what became an important part of today's story, given how many of them allegedly were referred to him by Clay Shaw. Andrews was a jack-of-all-trades, as they say, and in the legal business, he was probably master of none. But he did have particular experience in immigration matters and recently had been the attorney representing Carlos Marcello on his immigration issue before it was handled by other more experienced attorneys, including G. Ray Gill. Despite his clown-like appearance and jocular style, Andrews did have a reputation around town as being reasonably well-heeled in representing immigration matters. In his own words, true or not, he would state that other New Orleans lawyers would point to him as being the best in town at dealing with such cases. Well, you never know when the big kahuna case is going to arrive on your doorstep. And sometimes it happens just when you're flat on your back in a hospital bed. Well, that's what happened to Dean Andrews. With news of the assassination that happened on the day before, still fresh and raw for everyone around the world, Andrews would get a call on Saturday, November 23rd that would change his life forever. According to the FBI report that was filed on December 6th, some two weeks later, the story of that Saturday afternoon goes like this. On November 25th, 1963, Dean Andrews, who is well known to this FBI office, contacted Special Agent in Charge, Agent Rice, 
by telephone from the Hotel Du Hospital in New Orleans, where he was confined as a patient. That would set off a series of five FBI interviews and two or three Secret Service interviews of Andrews within 10 days of this initial contact. And those interviews were accompanied by other interviews of relevant witnesses, including Dean Andrews' secretary, Eva Springer, and an investigator for Andrews' law firm named R.M. Davis, who was a retired Army sergeant. All of this, along with a hefty set of resources focused on, and I quote, finding, and I use that term loosely, this mysterious cat named Clay Bertrand. Now, having said that, back to the FBI report. Andrews stated that somewhere between 6.30 p.m. and 9 o'clock p.m. that night, while he was still in the hospital and under sedation, he received a telephone call. It was a telephone call that he believed to be locally made, although he was not positive of that, and it was from a man who had given the name of Clay Bertrand. And this man inquired if Andrews would be willing to defend Lee Harvey Oswald in the murder and assassination case. Andrews would state that Bertrand indicated that he would visit him at the hospital later, but Andrews stated that Bertrand failed to do so. And the following day, Andrews would learn that Oswald had been murdered. Quoting directly from that report, the FBI would state that, and I quote, he seems to feel that he had been previously contacted by Clay Bertrand in connection with another case. But Andrews could not place him or furnish any information to assist in identifying or locating him. Andrews said that he had asked his secretary to check the records at his office concerning Oswald and Bertrand, but that she must have been unable to locate any records pertaining to either of them. He stated that when he returned to his office, he was going to personally check his files and then inform the FBI of the results. Andrews indicated that he believed that Bertrand was a homosexual. That was the official FBI story on December 6th, about two weeks after the assassination. I mean, it was about the fourth or fifth report that had been updated and massaged by the FBI since the first one was filed on Monday night, November 25th, after Dean Andrews called the FBI for the first time and relayed the story in two separate discussions. Two separate FBI agents on Monday, first by telephone to Agent Rice, and then to Regis Kennedy just a short amount of time later as Kennedy almost instantly showed up in Andrews' room at Hotel Dew. All of that, along with a call to boot to the Secret Service. <laughs> Let's rewind the tape and explore those various versions of the FBI account of Andrews, because the progression and meandering of statements is confusing and curious. While they retain a common set of facts in each of them, still there are important details which appear, disappear, change, and some that get elaborated on and some that plain get twisted around into something quite different, especially the physical characteristics of this mysterious man, Clay Bertrand, and some that likely were just planted possibly by the FBI to discredit the story and keep it from being in opposition to the lone gunman theory that was already like cement that had hardened over the post-assassination weekend. And honestly, what we have is a real soup mix. Altogether, a collective documentation by the FBI 
that represents what Andrews actually said and what they interpreted that he said. And at moments, that might have been difficult. And perhaps things he didn't say. And clearly some statements to help steer the narrative away from what he was saying. As if the FBI at that very moment knew that the file had to reflect what was to appear, at least on the surface, as a thorough rundown of this character that might be a conspiratorial partner of Oswald's. But knowing how explosive it would be to find anything credible in that discussion, now that the lone gunman theory was already taking shape and solidifying by that Monday after the assassination. Yes, sirree. Those New Orleans FBI agents were at ground zero, and they knew it, and they were instantly feeling the heat of the circumstance. They knew on Monday, as soon as they got that call from Andrews, that this inbound call was like a stick of dynamite, at least as it related to the lone gunman theory. It was a thread that, if credible, might lead to its destruction. And so now it was part of their job to make sure that certain things necessary for the files were there regarding this messy little circumstance with Dean Andrews. Explosive was the word. According to Vincent Bugliosi in his book, Reclaiming History, the first law enforcement agency that Andrews called on Monday and told this story of the phone call from Bertrand, the first agency was the Secret Service. That is his first call to authorities that he would make from his hospital bed. This sequence is debated among authors, and James Kirkwood believes that the Secret Service call came second after an initial call to the FBI. But regardless, that interview with the Secret Service, which took place on the same day, resulted in a Secret Service report stating that Andrews, and I quote, seemed to feel that he had been previously contacted by Clay Bertrand with another case, but he could not place him or furnish any information to assist in identifying or locating him. The language in this Secret Service report strangely begins to mirror FBI reports put together several weeks later and likely results from the comparison of stories between the two agencies, and not necessarily from consistent statements made by Andrews. But that is just conjecture on my part based on reading the documents. Who knows, maybe Dean Andrews was consistent in that particular aspect. Okay, back to Monday. And Dean Andrews had more to say later on that Monday night, November 25th, to FBI agent Rice, when he would begin to tell more of the fantastic story that took place over the weekend and which was preceded by his earlier encounters with Oswald himself. So let's listen, and I'll try to adhere as closely as I can to the true wording in the actual FBI report, while still making it understandable in the context. So here we go. He, meaning Andrews, said that in June and July 1963, specific dates being unrecalled, that Lee H. Oswald had visited his office on three occasions and expressed concern about, one, his citizenship status, two, his wife's status, and three, his undesirable discharge from the Marine Corps, which he claimed had made it impossible to obtain suitable employment. Mr. Andrews said that Oswald was accompanied by a total of approximately five persons during the three visits. Andrews stated that he knew two of the subjects by sight, 
and that on two occasions, Oswald was accompanied by a young man of Mexican extraction, not Cuban, whom Andrews did not know. Andrews said that he believed that all of Oswald's companions were homosexuals who possibly frequented the Gaslight Bar in the French Quarter, where such individuals congregate. He said Oswald was supposed to furnish him $20 and also his Marine Corps serial number in order to obtain copies of pertinent records from the Marine Corps. Andrews stated that Oswald did not comply and that he did not establish a file on him or receive a fee. He further advised that on or about August 1963, he saw Oswald on Canal Street passing out literature favoring Castro, and that when he more or less admonished him, Oswald indicated that he was receiving $25 a day for his work. That information in the FBI report was received from Andrews on November 25th, and it was passed along to Inspector Thomas J. Kelly of the Secret Service the next day, November 26th, by telephone. Other officials, including Paul Paterni and Robert Bauck, were also furnished the information via telephone conversations that took place on November 29, 1963, according to the same FBI report. What was known by many at the time is that Regis Kennedy knew Andrews well. Kennedy, who would become an important FBI agent in this story, would have a conversation separately with Andrews, and Andrews would separately convey the same information to him. An event that was documented in this same FBI memo prepared by Rice. And Regis Kennedy himself would write his own report after showing up at Dean Andrews' bedside. In our December 6th FBI memo, the FBI would state that they made inquiries of the Police Department Intelligence Division, the Bureau of Identification, and the Detective and Narcotics Divisions and squads, along with the vice squads of the New Orleans Police Department, and they would all find no record of a clay bear trend. Presumably not thinking that this was an alias, so these routine inquiries actually appear appropriate, but nonetheless useless, as we are to find out soon enough that, indeed, clay bear tran was an alias. At this point in the investigation, the FBI was trying to nail down a few things more obvious. They had a picture of Oswald passing out Fair Play for Cuba pamphlets, and in that same photograph was another unidentified subject. We'll reveal that person a little later in the podcast. The picture was taken in front of the International Trademark Building in New Orleans. Yes, the same building that Clay Shaw worked in. And they would take that picture with them and make their way over to Dean Andrews' house right after he was discharged on November 29th. This picture, along with other photographs of Oswald in it, were shown to Andrews. And the FBI would simply document that Andrews did not recognize the other man in the picture in front of the trademark. Nor was this other man the gentleman who accompanied Oswald to his office. They would continue to follow up between November 29th and December 4th with other routine inquiries in their attempt to find out who Glaber Trand was, speaking with a manager at the New Orleans Credit Bureau and similar individuals at the Public Library and the Louisiana State Employment Service. Not surprisingly, none of those inquiries produced a person in the records who went by the name of Glaber Trand. By December 2nd, Dean Andrews had returned to work and he would call the FBI back on the same day, advising that he had checked his office files and they had failed to disclose any record of Oswald or Clay Bertrand. 
Andrews agreed to continue to make inquiries in an effort to identify Clay Bertrand and that he would advise the FBI office of the results. On that same day, Agent Rice, along with Agent Counts, would visit Tulane University and interview its provost, M.E. Latham. The good provost appeared not to be aware of the pamphlet handouts that were occurring on his campus by Oswald. The FBI requested that he do a record check for Clay Bertrand and one Alec James Seidel. The university promptly complied, and on December 3, 1963, Dr. Latham called the FBI back, indicating that the university performed a careful check of its students, faculty members, and employees, and there was no record of either of these two men, or even similar names. Other inquiries related to the Fair Play for Cuba committee were also made, with no information resulting from that inquiry. What the FBI did not tell the provost on that day was that they had established a connection between Oswald and Dr. Leonard Reisman who was a professor at Tulane and was reportedly active in a group known as the New Orleans Council for Peaceful Alternatives, or otherwise known as Ban the Bomb. Dr. Reisman was being monitored by the FBI at the time, and his file was classified as being a subversive. Other FBI agents involved in the Reisman matter requested that he not be interviewed by the FBI agents that were investigating the Kennedy case at the time, ostensibly to keep their surveillance quiet. The FBI report goes out of the way to say that Regis Kennedy was another member of the FBI's New Orleans office who made extensive inquiries to identify Clay Bertrand and that, to date, he had been unsuccessful in establishing who this individual was. In a separate FBI report filed on November 30th by Regis Kennedy, he would make reference to another Clay, Clay Gould, and they would document that they had asked Dean Andrews about Clay Gould as well, with Andrews responding that the name meant nothing to him. It's a curious thing that they would bring this name up and ask Dean Andrews about it, but never explained the origins in this particular FBI report of why they were asking him about this other person who also had the first name of Clay. It is, however, revealed in another FBI memo, and we'll get back to that in a second. Without going on a wander right at the moment to explain a little bit more about Regis Kennedy and his more comprehensive involvement, I'll just say that he's an important figure in the investigation. On November 27th, just two days after Dean Andrews made his first outbound call to the FBI, Regis Kennedy would file one of his follow-up reports. It's one of the early indications that either Andrews was having real second thoughts, perhaps based on what he was now coming to understand about the danger that he might be in, or perhaps the report is just a more subtle deception simply planted by the FBI at that moment as part of the overall attempt to steer everything back into a lone gunman crazy nut theory. It's a simple one-paragraph report that was filed on November 27th, and this is what it reads. Dean Andrews, attorney at law, Audubon Building, Canal Street, New Orleans. Currently confined at Hotel Du Hospital, room 202. Was contacted and advised that since last interviewed, he had suffered a relapse. And at the time of the interview, he was under heavy sedation and could recall no information which would assist in the identification of Clay Bertrand. Andrews advised that Bertrand had called him Saturday evening, November 23, 1963, 
and requested him to act as his attorney to defend Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, just as it states, it's pretty clear here that the FBI wanted to get on record that Andrews was under heavy sedation. Only, in reality, he likely was not. We know that because of the medical record indication of what drugs he was administered while in the hospital and what the likely effects of those drugs might have been. But at that moment, it helped the FBI avoid any real attempts to get the truth out of Dean Andrews as to who Clay Bertrand really was. And later, it would provide a convenient cover for Andrews as he was looking for a place to hide from Jim Garrison. And documentation like this, especially words like this, under heavy sedation, provided the perfect cover. The famous JFK researcher Harold Weisberg, who went to New Orleans at the time of the Garrison investigation and spent much time uncovering and reviewing the FBI documents related to Andrews, would make some pretty searing statements. He would state that the FBI reports raised more questions than they answered and that they told lies knowing that they were lies. He would state that it is false that Andrews was not, and I quote, capable of using the phone when government investigators knew he had repeatedly used a phone. And it is also false that Dean Andrews was under any unusual sedation. The FBI did not quote the doctor on the nature of the medication. However, the nurse treating Andrews specified drugs that are used at home, nose drops, cough syrup, and phenobarbital. Weisberg is adamant that this would not have prevented Andrews' recollection of what he did and said, and it certainly did not eliminate his recollection of the Clay Bertrand phone call. Weisberg would surmise that the use of the name Clay Gould may also have been a name that was brought up on the phone call that day between the caller and Andrews. Regis Kennedy would ask Betty Parent, an informant known to Kennedy, if she knew a Clay Gould. Why would the question be posed particularly to her, Weisberg asked. And yet Dean Andrews was never asked by the Warren Commission, nor in his Orleans grand jury questioning, who Clay Gould may have been. The name is not mentioned in the Warren Commission report, even though it is squarely in the FBI reports, and unresolved and unexplained. The mention by Regis Kennedy regarding Andrews being under heavy sedation is curious enough, But what makes it even more interesting is that a second and very similar FBI report was filed on December 5th by Special Agent Richard Bucaro. It was filed after he spoke with Dr. J.D. Andrews, who treated D.D. Andrews for his condition. Incidentally, there is no relationship between Dr. and Dean Andrews. Dr. Andrews would state that Mr. Dean Andrews was kept under heavy sedation for the first four hours at the hospital and that he did not believe that Mr. Andrews was capable of using the telephone during that time frame. Again, what an odd thing to be documenting when the FBI was well aware that Andrews, in fact, received a phone call that he recalled quite clearly and made other calls himself during this same time frame. But wait, Agent Bucaro wasn't done yet. He would go as far as to contact Miss Thelma Masserini, who was the medical records librarian at the hospital. He did so in an attempt to understand exactly what was in the medical record on the night of November 23rd. He would file an FBI report confirming the medicines and treatment that I just mentioned a minute ago and indicating that Dean Andrews was treated with nose drops at 6 o'clock p.m. and some cough medicine. 
And at 8 o'clock p.m., he received sedation in the form of the phenobarbital, complaining around that time of chest pain. And at 9 o'clock, he was given some antibiotics, and at 10 o'clock, he had become quiet. Oddly enough, this documentation indicates that he hardly had anything of consequence before 6 o'clock. But at that moment, based on what they knew, they could at least say that he had been given these drugs prior to receiving the phone call to represent Oswald, which, to their knowledge, at that moment, probably came in somewhere between 6 and 9 o'clock that night, or so they thought, based on Andrew's statements. But in this timing, there is confusion and controversy. And in fact, it is likely that the call did not come in at that time. By the way, the only reason that we are harping on these time frames is that it appears fairly clear that the FBI was attempting to establish that Andrews was heavily sedated when he made these original statements, perhaps pointing to the idea that it would be easy for someone to suggest to Andrews then that he might have been delirious at the time he said these things, and that this in and of itself, might have been a good reason enough to innocently walk his own statements back, so to speak, and take them out of the official record or at least modify them in some such way as to make them harmless so that they could just sit there lying on the floor without being in the hunt. The only problem with that is that Andrews got on the phone right after receiving the mysterious call from Clay Bertrand, and he did something rather unusual. As a general rule, he would never call his office manager at home on a weekend, but this was no ordinary moment in time, so he picked up the phone and he called Eva Springer, relaying the fact to her that he had been called to represent Oswald in the Kennedy assassination case. She wanted no part of it and told him that she would not be joining him if he took the case and went to Dallas. In her own testimony, she remembers the discussion vividly and recalls the time somewhere just around 4 o'clock p.m. because she had just come back from her routine trip to the market. The obvious importance of this timestamp is that the mysterious man, Clay Bertrand, had to have called Andrews sometime earlier in the afternoon then, prior to Andrews then turning around and calling his secretary around 4 p.m. The call with Bertrand had to have taken place earlier in the day, before any drugs were administered, regardless of their impact. I mean, if you can call cough medicine a drug. Sorry, FBI. The idea that he was heavily sedated at the time that Clay Shaw, I mean Clay Bertrand, called him is, well, it's a dog that just don't hunt. But to be totally fair here, people don't check themselves into a hospital for no reason at all. He was feeling lousy, I am sure of that. And there is no doubt that that can have some impact on memory and recall. But what makes that conclusion sound even more perplexing is that a second person from Andrew's office was involved in the discussions that day with Andrews. A second person besides Eva Springer. Andrews himself used an investigator, as we have mentioned prior, Sergeant Davis, who performed various duties for Andrews in his law practice. And when interviewed by the FBI, and you'll hear that a little bit later in the podcast, he stated that he was there at the hospital, visiting Andrews for a good part of Saturday and leaving sometime between 3.30 and 4 p.m. 
ostensibly there to discuss the status of the judges' race and what they needed to do in these last few weeks before the election. Andrews, for whatever reason, did not want him to leave and urged him to stay. So he did. But most importantly, in the FBI statement related to his interview, Davis stated that during the time he was with Andrews that afternoon, Andrews did not receive any call from a Clay Bertrand. So the logical conclusion is that he left sometime prior to the call that Bertrand made and then the subsequent call that Andrews made to Eva Springer. So somewhere between 3.30 and 4 p.m., the call from Bertrand took place. As I mentioned, Regis Kennedy also interviewed Andrews on Monday, November 25th, and he too promptly filed a report on November 26th of the information that had been separately relayed to him. There are some discrepancies between his report filed on the 26th and the report filed two weeks later that covers essentially much the same ground. But this earlier report from Kennedy provides significantly more detail on Andrews' interaction with Oswald during the summer when Oswald approached him regarding the legal matters mentioned earlier. I know it's a little redundant to be presenting all of these different FBI reports, all of which have a lot of redundant information in them, but it's important because this is one of the ways we are going to be able to discern the differences in all of these reports. I'm going to read verbatim from the Regis Kennedy FBI report of November 26th and then point out some of the differences after we're finished reading all of these things. So here goes. Dean Andrews, attorney at law, Audubon Building, New Orleans, presently confined to the Hotel Dew Hospital in New Orleans, Louisiana, advised that he met Lee Harvey Oswald shortly before July 4th, 1963. He estimated the time of this meeting is late in the month of June 1963. He stated that Oswald appeared at his office with several individuals who impressed him as being homosexuals. Andrews stated that he could not remember the identity of the people who came to his office with Oswald. He stated that he did not open a file on Oswald and further that Oswald did not pay him for any legal service. Andrews stated that Oswald was concerned because he could not obtain employment and inquired of him if it would be possible to reopen his bad conduct discharge with the United States Marines. Andrews also stated that he was interested in the immigration status of his wife and was concerned with the legal question of his citizenship status and whether he had lost his American citizenship in Russia. Andrews stated that he talked to Oswald two or three times and asked Oswald to bring his military discharge papers and his wife's passport and any other documents he might have, to his office, but Oswald never produced the papers. Andrews stated that it would cost 25 or $30 to obtain the necessary military records of Oswald, and as Oswald did not produce the money to cover this initial expense, no action was taken. Andrews advised that he had searched his mind in an effort to identify the persons who came to the office with Oswald, and he cannot recall them. He stated that he recalled one person whom he described as a Mexican who claimed he was born in Texas from the appearance and demeanor of this person. Andrew stated he thought him to be a homosexual, and he stated that he never knew this individual's name, but that he would sit outside of Andrew's office and wait for Oswald. Now, I am going to stop here for a second 
and ask you to listen closely to the next line in the Regis Kennedy report. I know there's a lot of detail here and it's easy to get lost. Perhaps maybe you're eating a sandwich or something, but this is important. He recalled another individual whose name he believes to be Clay Bertrand who accompanied Oswald to Andrew's office. He remembers this person as a youthful appearing person, age 22 to 23, 5 feet 7 inches tall, 160 pounds, blonde hair, and crew cut. Andrew stated that although he was associating the name Clay Bertrand in his mind with the individual described who appeared at Andrew's office with Oswald, he cannot be sure this individual was, in fact, Clay Bertrand. <laughs> Let me just stop right there in the middle of that report. You now have a description of Clay Bertrand, and he, he's only 5 feet 7 inches tall. He's only 160 pounds. He has blonde hair and a crew cut. That's nothing like Clay Shaw. But wait, that'll get fixed soon enough. Alas. And back to the report. Andrews advised that he was in Hotel Dew under sedation and asleep sometime Saturday night when the telephone rang and a person who said his name was Clay Bertrand asked him if he would be interested in handling the defense of Lee Oswald in Dallas, Texas for the murder of President Kennedy. Andrews stated that he told the person that he would have to consider this matter and he made no notes regarding the call. He stated that Bertrand did not leave a telephone number but told him he would call him back. Now that's a little different, isn't it? The earlier version said he would come by. Andrews stated that on Saturday, and that's wrong too because this happened Sunday, on Saturday he spoke with Sam Monk Zeldin, a New Orleans attorney, and asked him if he would be interested in assisting in the defense. And while talking to Zeldin, a news report came in that Oswald had been shot. Andrews stated that it was his belief that Clay Bertrand was one of the individuals that had been in his office with Oswald, and the name seems to be familiar. But he has no idea who Clay Bertrand is or how he came to contact him. All right, was he there or was he not? Ugh. Andrews stated that he has no file in his office on either Oswald or Clay Bertrand, and he has had his secretary make a thorough search of his records with negative results. Andrews stated that for the past several years, he has represented a number of homosexuals that have been involved in minor local violations, and he feels that he is well known to most of the homosexuals in the French Quarter. He stated that he had no information that Oswald was a homosexual. Andrews stated that he would continue efforts to recall any additional facts which would enable him to identify Clay Bertrand as a possible associate of Lee Oswald. Andrews stated that it was well known that he had been in Hotel Dew since Thursday, November 21st, 1963. Actually, he was in from Wednesday, November 20th. He stated that he had to continue a number of municipal court cases and that anyone with connections among the homosexuals in New Orleans could have known his location. He stated that Bertrand could not have contacted his wife or his office and obtained this information. R.M. Davis, investigator for Dean Andrews, upon the instructions of his employer, Dean Andrews, made extensive searches of the files of Andrews' office and has been unable to locate any record of Clay Bertrand or Lee Oswald. And he advised that he recalled Oswald visiting Andrews' office and Andrews had mentioned to him that Oswald was desirous of obtaining a hearing on his 
bad conduct charge from the U.S. Marine Corps. Davis himself advised that he could not recall or identify any of the individuals with whom Oswald came to the office. (laughs) Imagine that. Well, there you have it. Oh, and one important fact to point out is something stated by Harold Weisberg from the appendix to Weisberg's book, Oswald in New Orleans, that Andrew's office had been burglarized of, guess what, only those files in which any Oswald papers would have been kept. (laughs) Apparently, and as Weisberg so sarcastically puts it, the burglars wanted nothing of intrinsic value, only files dealing with Andrew's least remunerative cases. This strange burglary excited no official interest. (laughs) Well, imagine that. The burglars only wanted the file on Oswald. On November 27th, Regis Kennedy would file an additional report indicating that he had talked to one Junior O'Rourke, a man who was a United taxi cab driver and who operated on the corner of Bourbon and Conti Streets in New Orleans. He was a former New Orleans police officer. He was retired and he had extensive contacts in the New Orleans French Quarter, according to Kennedy. And these contacts were particularly strong among the homosexual element. He advised that Clay Bertrand was not known to him, and that inquiry among sources known to him, familiar with the French Quarter, had been negative to identify this person. One of the curious things about this particular FBI report is the actual original report is typed, but with one manually penciled in correction, and that is the insertion of the word not, which was placed in after the typed report was completed, placed between the two words was known, making it read that Clay Bertrand was not known. When exactly that change was made to the report is not clear. Was it an innocent mistake or not? Regis Kennedy would also interview Betty Parrott of 935 Dauphine Street. She lived just a short distance down from where Clay Shaw lived at 1313 Dauphine Street. Why she particularly was interviewed is not known. It seems as if she must have been a known informant to Regis Kennedy. She told Kennedy that she had numerous acquaintances among the sex deviates of the New Orleans French Quarter, and she advised that she had been unable to determine any information which would identify an individual by the name of Clay Bertrand. She advised that the only individual she could associate with either name was an individual named Clay Gould, who associates with the sex deviates in the New Orleans French Quarter. She advised that she had no reason to believe that Clay Gould is identical to Clay Bertrand, other than the similarity of the first name. Okay, well, at least we now know the origins of the name Clay Gould mentioned earlier. Regis Kennedy would also include in his report that Dean Andrews had called one of his contacts at the district attorney's office and investigator named Raymond Comstock, who was familiar with many of the homosexuals in the French Quarter. But he, too, had been unable to identify who Clay Bertrand was. Yes, they did a good job at documenting how impossible it was to identify who the mystery man Clay Bertrand really was. It would take the investigation and the Clay Shaw trial some six years later to figure that all out. Regis Kennedy would file yet another report on December 3rd, another version of essentially the same information and yet more inconsistencies and additions to the story of Dean Andrews 
on that Saturday. Here are some excerpts that are relevant. Mr. Andrews advised that on the night of November 23rd, 1963, between the hours of 6 and 9 p.m., that's consistent, he was awakened by the telephone in his room at Hotel Dew. That's a new concept, being awakened. He advised that he answered this telephone from a sound sleep. As he describes the phone call, he now states that Andrews stated that the name Clay Bertrand seemed familiar to him, and so did the voice. That's new. And this next statement is a doozy. Andrews stated that since he has returned to his office and has been attempting to recall this telephone conversation, it seems like a dream to him. But it seems, Andrews stated, that the principal reasons why he feels that the telephone call was not a dream was because of the action he took in contacting Mr. Sam Monk Zeldin, president of the New Orleans Criminal Bar Association and a close personal friend. Telephoning him on Sunday, November 24, 1963, and reaching him at the New Orleans Athletic Club and discussing with him the propriety of defending Oswald and asking Zeldin if he would be interested in assisting in the defense. Do you think that uh, he may recall this quite clearly because Zeldin is real and would likely be called to tell the truth about what was spoken? Andrews advised that in addition to talking with Zeldin, he had discussed receiving this call from Clay Bertrand with his investigator, Sergeant R.M. Davis, United States Army retired, his secretary, Eva Springer, as well as his wife. That's a new one. He's now suggesting that he had told his wife as well. Andrews stated that he could not pinpoint the time he discussed his call with Davis or his wife and secretary. All pretty consistent with the idea that he was delirious. Mr. Andrews advised that he has no recollection of calling the Federal Bureau of Investigation or the United States Secret Service on November 26, 1963, but he does recall being interviewed by both representatives of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the United States Secret Service. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? You call two of the most powerful agencies in the United States regarding the assassination of the President of the United States, which just occurred a couple of days before, and you don't remember. Well, they did. The report would go along and say he advised that he was under heavy sedation. (laughs) Reemphasize that, won't we? At the time of these interviews, and he was a very sick man. Mr. Andrews advised that he recalled Lee Harvey Oswald coming into his office on three to five occasions. Oh, guess what? It has grown from three occasions with five individuals to now it may have been five occasions on or about the last week of June 1963. That's consistent. Another important fact that was added was that Andrews advised that Oswald arrived at his office late in the evening after 5 o'clock p.m. and before 6 o'clock p.m. And as a result, his secretary had left and There was no record made of his visit in the appointment book, and he, Andrews, made no file on Oswald's visit. Why, then, was there later a reported burglary of Andrews' office where he declared that the Oswald file was missing? Did he have one or not? That's the question. So many inconsistencies. Andrews advised that Oswald, on the first occasion that he entered his office, arrived at the same time as four other individuals, 
whom he recalls as gay kids that are French Quarter sex deviates. As a side note, some authors document that many of these kids were brought to Andrews on charges of cross-dressing. Men wearing women's clothing, which seems hard to believe that you could be prosecuted for that, especially in New Orleans. And then again, it was 1963. Andrews advised that Oswald could really dig that cat talk. That is, you know, understand the jive talk or the slang expressions that were being used among the sex deviates of the French Quarter. That's the first reference to uh, Oswald's connection to the uh, homosexual friends that he was bringing along with him to these meetings. Andrews stated that at no time did Oswald indicate for whom he was working or indicate that he was being paid to pass out Friends of Cuba literature. Certainly an addition, but a relatively obvious and harmless one. Andrews advised that this meeting on Canal Street was the last time he saw Lee Harvey Oswald, but from some source, he learned that Oswald had been arrested for getting into a fight. He advised that he did not represent Oswald in court. And here's a new one. He stated that he has every reason to believe that he has met Clay Bear Tran before, and the name seems to be familiar to him. But to date, he has been unable to identify Clay Bear Tran as being identical with any individual he knows. What a cluster. Andrews advised that he would make every effort to identify Clay Bertrand by searching his memory and files of his office. I do have to say that the wording of that last paragraph is kind of curious to me, using the term Clay Bertrand as being identical with any individual he knows. You see, that implies the idea of an alias, which at that point in time, just a couple of days after the assassination, no one was talking about Clay Bertrand as being an alias. Andrews advised that he had reviewed a series of still photographs taken from film photographed by WDSU cameraman of Lee Harvey Oswald passing out literature in front of the International Trademark. And in one corner of the photograph showed him by the Secret Service was a picture of that mystery person, Clemencia Almeida, a person who was employed by M.L. Queen at the International Trademark in New Orleans. Imagine that. Andrews advised that none of the other people in these photographs were identical with Clay Bertrand, and he does not know any of the people in the photographs except Oswald, whom he immediately recognized. And now here's a new one for you, consistent with, I just want it all to go away. Mr. Andrews repeated at the conclusion of the interview that this entire incident could have been dreamed by him in view of the physical condition he was in at the time. He stated, however, that he believes he did receive a call from an individual that he recalls as Clay Bertrand, and he feels he will be able to identify Clay Bertrand either from material that is in his files or recognize him. (laughs) Okay. Dino, you are a real piece of work. Mr. Andrews stated that he has a mental picture of Clay Bertrand as being approximately 6 feet 1 inch to 6 feet 2 inches, brown hair, excellent appearance, well-dressed, and although a homosexual, is not obvious and probably has a good job in the city. Oh, you're leaving clues all over the place now, Dean Andrews. 
How did you get this? Well, Andrews goes on to say that he stated that this is a mental picture and he cannot in any way recall where the description came from or or how he recalls Bertrand. Hmm. He reminds us all that his office was closed on Friday and Saturday, November 22nd and 23rd, and that Andrews does not use an answering service, further solidifying that only the homosexual clients that he was currently serving would likely have known that he was in the hospital. Because Andrews advised that prior to entering the hospital, it was necessary that he postpone several cases and notify his clients that he was in the hospital. And this is the only way that the individual using the name Clay Bertrand could have learned that he was in room 202 of Hotel Du Hospital. I think you can tell that the FBI reports are getting murky or, or murkier. Wait till you hear the next one, dated December 6th, filed by Regis Kennedy and related to his interview with Sergeant R.M. Davis, who again was Dean Andrews' investigator. Here goes. Sergeant R.M. Davis, United States Army retired, employed by attorney at law Dean Andrews, room 628 Maison Blanche building, advised that his employer was positive that a person named Clay Bertrand had called him on the telephone and asked him to represent Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas, Texas, prior to December 3rd, 1963. He advised that he and Andrews had spent hours looking through files and discussing with each other and with Andrew's secretary, Eva Springer, the various aspects of the call received from Clay Bertrand, and he has no doubt. What does he have no doubt about? He just said he was absolutely positive that a person named Clay Bertrand had called on the telephone, and that's what Dean had told him. Oh, well, wait a minute. Andrews is now convinced that the call he received at the hospital was a dream. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... That's a pivot right in the middle of a sentence. Unbelievable. This is in an FBI report. Davis advised that he was at the hospital most of the afternoon of November 23, 1963. We, we know that. Leaving sometime between 3.30 p.m. and 4 o'clock p.m. And obviously, fitting his testimony into the time frame, it must have been shortly after he left that the call from Clay Bertrand came in. And then shortly after that, Andrews turned around and called Eva Springer. So Davis went home and came back on Sunday. And that was the first occasion that Andrews mentioned Clay Bertrand to him. On Sunday, November 24, 1963, Davis was under the impression at this time that Bertrand was well known to Andrews. Isn't that interesting? The day before he decides to call, the FBI, or the Secret Service, he's telling his own investigator that Bertrand was well-known to him. Let's focus on that. This is before all of the FBI and Secret Service communications began. Dean Andrews is telling his investigator, R.M. Davis, that he was under the impression at this time that Bertrand was well-known to him. And that's documented in an FBI report. Davis would go on to say that Andrews was periodically asleep and awake, but he did not want him to go, to leave. And that is the reason why he remained all afternoon, as we know. The chief topic of discussion during this visit was, again, the progress of Andrews' political campaign for election as a judge in Jefferson Parish. 
Sergeant Davis came back on November 25th, that Monday, and he stated that when he visited Andrews, he was very much upset over a news item that Andrews had received over the TV set in his room at the hospital. And that was that Oswald had fired three shots at the President of the United States using a bolt-action rifle, and he had done so within three seconds. Andrews insisted that this could not be done and wanted to call the FBI and the Secret Service and furnish these agencies with his opinion. You'll find out later in subsequent testimony that Andrews was in the military and he actually knew a little bit about guns. Sergeant Davis would go on to tell the FBI that he advised Andrews not to take this action and then he left the hospital. Davis himself would confirm that he had extensively searched Andrews' office for information which might identify who Clay Bertrand was and had been unsuccessful in locating any records. But on the other hand, he recalls that in June 1963, the exact date unrecalled, that Andrews did discuss with him the procedure to amend or correct an undesirable discharge from the Marine Corps. When it comes to identifying Oswald, well, he just couldn't say whether Oswald was ever in Andrews' office. But after viewing numerous photographs of Oswald on various TV programs, he could state that he was vaguely familiar, and Oswald may have visited Andrews' office. And he could recall Andrews mentioning to him on various occasions that an individual named Oswald had been to Andrews' office. All right, I know all of this testimony is getting taxing, but we're pretty close. There's one more important, it's Eva Springer's, and it really just confirms much of what I've already said. She stated that on November 23rd, 1963, he called her at approximately 4 p.m. and told her that he was representing Lee Harvey Oswald in Dallas, Texas. She recalled that her only communication with him was that she was not going to Dallas with him and she wanted nothing to do with the case and asked Andrews who had hired him. She advised that Andrews told her it was Bertrand, no first name given. She advised that this name did not mean anything to her, and the conversation was ended. She can fix the time as being approximately 4 p.m., as she had just returned from the grocery store, doing her grocery shopping for the weekend. She advised that she had been searching Andrew's office for a record of Clay Bertrand and had been unable to locate this name. She advised that Clay Bertrand is not known to her. Eva Springer advised she does not recall Lee Harvey Oswald as a client of Dean Andrews and has no record of him at the office. She recalls Andrews speaking to her briefly about someone being interested in changing a discharge from the Marine Corps but she is unable to associate this conversation with any recollection of Oswald. She states that she does leave the office, usually at 5 o'clock p.m., and never recalled Oswald coming to the office. Obviously, all of that is pretty consistent with everything else that was said in prior testimony. Clay Shaw was arrested on March 1st, and the very next day, March 2nd, is the day the Garrison's team had Dean Andrews summoned to their offices for more questioning. He would be accompanied by his friend, and now his attorney in the matter, Monk Zeldin. Monk was a former athlete. He was short and stocky with an impressive physique. One thing the Garrison's team was quite interested in in this initial meeting was whether or not Andrews could identify the Mexican with the butch haircut that 
he had identified in earlier statements. The Mexican that had accompanied Oswald to his office. Garrison staff showed him many pictures that day, but he was unable to identify the Mexican from the pictures shown. And Andrews made a point of saying that the reason he couldn't identify the Mexican was because there was no picture of the Mexican's neck. And this particular Mexican had a thick one. Or perhaps said another way by one historian, a strong-looking neck. It would be the first of many appearances over the next few months made by Andrews at Garrison's DA offices. And these appearances would inevitably draw the attention of the press. He would be asked many other questions too, and of course many of them were to try to draw him out and conclude that Clay Shaw was Clay Bertrand. One important statement made by Dean Andrews in these interrogations was that this man Bertrand had gray hair and a ruddy complexion. The description of a ruddy complexion was consistent with much of what was said elsewhere in other conversations, including the FBI reports, but his description now included a man with gray hair and not brown hair or sandy hair. As you recall from earlier in the podcast, the FBI reports that Bertrand's hair color was brown, and this was purportedly, according to Andrews, based on what the FBI took down and documented in its report. Was it their lie or was it his? Because now Andrews himself was saying that this cat, Clay Bertrand, had gray or white hair. A slip-up, perhaps? Because Andrews was likely not aware at that moment what the FBI had previously put down in their own reports in terms of a description given by Andrews for Clay Shaw. What they had put down and possibly done to help distract the inquiry into this mystery man, whoever he was, who might have had a conspiratorial connection to Oswald. Dean Andrews was likely telling the truth in this one moment when he blurted out the hair color of Clay Bertrand, and it was gray. Right after the first downtown grilling by Garrison's investigative and prosecutorial team, he and Muggs Zeldin would take part in a press interview, answering questions for television reporters. The questions from the press were fast and furious, including some predictable inquiries such as, what do you think of Garrison's investigation? To which Andrews would reply, that's his problem, not mine. And at one point, a reporter asked him if he thought he might himself be arrested. To which he replied again, I couldn't care less. It would be less than a week later on March 9th that he would be summoned and appear before the Orleans Grand Jury, and again on March 16th. And the Grand Jury would focus in on what Dean Andrews had said in the very beginning, in the first few days and weeks after the assassination, as told in the reports of the FBI and the Secret Service, and then at the Warren Commission hearings under oath just a few months later in July 1964. What he said then versus what he was saying now. So stay tuned in episode 176 for the full recall of Dean Andrews' Warren Commission testimony. The first time you will hear directly from the mouth of Dean Andrews. The first time he'll speak to us without the pen of the FBI in between his lips and their notebook. Who knows which one is right? Regardless, it will make for some colorful comparisons of the truth. All 
part of the slog. big loser in the case so far is Dean Andrews, a hippie-talking lawyer and assistant district attorney known as the Fat Man. He told the Warren Commission that the day Kennedy died, a man called Clay Bertrand asked him to represent Oswald. Garrison maintains Clay Bertrand is Clay Shaw. Andrews says he isn't, but because of conflict in his testimony, he got 18 months for perjury. I'm not in a position to comment. I'm under closure because of a court order directing those persons involved, the principals, that is, prohibiting comment on the case. To my right or to the audience's left is my chief counsel, John Dowling, and to his right is his associate counsel, Walter Kelly, and I would suggest that I turn the question over to my capable counselors. That I sometimes wonder if the entire so-called assassination probe isn't a psychedelic reaction of a district attorney with an overstimulated imagination. Dean Andrews, the unfortunate fat man who faces 18 months in a decaying parish prison. He dare not talk for the record, but, he said, come to Bourbon Street and I'll show you what I think of the case. Thank you for listening to episode 175 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.